Thanks, Caro, for bringing that, uh, that reading to us. It'd be great if you can have the 2 Samuel 7 passage open. That'll be the one that I'll be majoring on tonight, uh, which was about page 306, I think it is. Uh, so that's 2 Samuel 7. A uh, quick reminder that I'll do question and answer at the end of the sermon. So if you've got questions on the way through, jot them down on your Care and Connect card so you don't forget them, and I'll be happy to take your questions uh, at the end of the service, uh, at the end of the sermon. Uh, how about I pray? Father, thank you so much. Thank you for David. Thank you for preserving this record of his life. And we pray now tonight that we might meet you, its author, in this place. Be present, Father, by your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, When you're little, uh, if uh, you grew up in the church, you might have gone to Sunday school. Did anyone go to Sunday school when they were little? Okay, great. If you didn't, really delighted that you're here. That's a great thing. But um, we'll let you, let you catch up if you weren't in Sunday school when you were a kid. Uh, the people who were in Sunday school, if you weren't paying attention and someone said to you, what's the answer? What is the answer more often than not? Uh, yes, uh, God, Jesus, the Bible. That's a very sophisticated answer. We generally just go with one answer. So uh, were you paying attention, Graham? And the answer would just be... Uh, Jesus, thank you. Yes, great. Okay. So uh, tonight, if you wonder at any point, and I, I look out at you and I'm looking for some feedback, and I go to you guys, you'll just say, great, okay, you've got this. This is working fantastically. But not just any Jesus. I don't know if you know, but there are a number of people called Jesus in the Bible. And not just the one that you're thinking of, who's the right answer in Sunday school. So the one we're talking about tonight is Jesus Jesus Christ. And uh, my name's Stuart Starr. My second name is Starr. Uh, is Jesus' second name uh, Christ? Was that his family name? And the answer to that is no, and we're going to try and find out why. Is there more in his second name? Yes, there's much more. And so tonight we're going to look at why is Jesus Jesus Christ And where can we find that in the Bible? So let me have a quick look with you at the word Christ. Now, we don't very often do languages in uh, church, but tonight we're going to do it just just briefly. So uh, Christ is actually the English form of a Greek word. Can you see it up there? Now, who can read Greek? Uh, Yes, Alec, what does it say? It says Christos, fantastic, which sounds a lot like Christ. Okay, fantastic. So now we've got that. But here's the explanation. That's it in Greek, but the Greek is actually translating a Hebrew word, which you can all read. Oh, it's such a shame that that second build came up, because I could have just said to you, have a look at that little squiggle uh, up the top there and tell me what that was. But now you all know. It all means Messiah. Okay, or Meshach. Uh, Messiah. But that doesn't help us, does it? Now we've got a Greek word that's a translation of a Hebrew word. What does the Hebrew word Messiah mean? Well, Messiah in English is anointed. Anointed. That's what Messiah means. And what does it mean to be anointed? Well, what we've been seeing in our series on David is that you anoint, you pour oil on the one you're choosing to make king. The one you're choosing to make king. So if we do a little bit of magic here, then what we can do is we can see that Christ is king. Jesus is king. But we really want to look tonight, why is Jesus a king? 
Why is it that he's a king? Now, we have a sense it's got something to do with David because this is a series on David and this introduction must have some relevance to the sermon, right? So it's got to have something to do with David. But David, King David, lived a thousand years before Jesus. So how do we get from David to Jesus? Well, that's what we're doing tonight. And that's what we're going to see in 2 Samuel 7. But just before we get there, we need to have a quick look at part of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written for the people of God when they're about to enter into the promised land. So they've been slaves in Egypt. They've come out of Egypt. They're just about to go into the promised land. And God says, stop. I need to give you some user manual instructions for how to handle carefully the promised land. Okay, And that's what Deuteronomy is doing. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, we hear these verses. But you will cross the Jordan. That was the way to get into the promised land. You'll cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you, at some point in the future, he will give you rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts. What are we seeing here? God had promised that he would give his people rest and that he would choose a home in the promised land. God would keep his people rest and he would choose a home in the promised land. Now, rest sounds pretty good. Does anyone like a holiday? Okay, we have a holiday when there's prosperity. In other words, we have to be well off enough to have a holiday. I don't know if you're aware, but people in Syria right now aren't having a holiday. They can't. It's an absolutely edge-of-your-seat existence. They're trying to find food. They're trying to have a society that will work. No one is on holidays. You can only have a holiday when there's rest and prosperity. Now, when you have a holiday, does your holiday help you? I think rest is a challenge. When you're on holiday, do you think you become more godly? Maybe not. Rest is a challenge, isn't it? When we drop all our regular habits, quite often some of the habits that we drop, not just going to work or school, but the habits that we drop are actually our godly habits at the same time. So when we rest, it can be a challenge. Have a look at how David handles this rest in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 3. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. It's really interesting, isn't it? David is a man at rest and his mind turns from, I'm doing great, to the ark of God is in a tent. You remember last week we got the ark into the the city of Jerusalem? Now, the ark of God is in a tent down there, and David's in his palace, and he goes, I don't reckon this is right. I'm just a mortal, and I'm in a palace of cedar, and God, his ark, is in a tent. That's probably not good. So he says to Nathan, his prophet, hey, mate, I'm thinking of building something for God. And Nathan goes, get into it. All good. You've been doing really well. God loves you. Go for gold, son. That's the kind of English-Australian translation of that. He basically says, you've got a pretty good track record at the moment, David. I reckon go for it. 
It's interesting to note that David has chosen to honour God in his rest. And just as a little insight here, everybody put a little bookmark here. On this rest, David honours God. Just remember that. We're going to come back to another rest for David later where he might not pass with such flying colours. There's a great quote I found through the week. And uh, it said this, Prosperity is harmless only when it's accepted as an opportunity for fresh forms of devotion and not as an occasion for idle self-indulgence. It's all very wordy, isn't it? What's, it? what's it saying? It's saying that we can get trapped by our rest. It can cause us to go astray. And it's only a blessing, it's only harmless when we go, hey, I've got extra space, let me turn that towards God. And so I guess as an early challenge in our sermon, I get us to go, where does our mind go when we're on holidays? Does the extra space that we win in that time turn towards God or to ourselves in self-indulgence? We're going to see what David did, but in order to do that, I need to give you a background to some of the covenants that went before what's going on. Now, have you seen this before? Many of you will have. This is my overview of the Bible. This is the whole timeline of the Bible. Starts in creation in Genesis, goes through to Jesus there in the New Testament and right to the end where there's a new heavens and a new earth. What I want to see you, we looked at covenants a couple of weeks ago, special promises between God and his people. I want to show you some so that we have a context for this one. We know that God made a covenant with Noah in Genesis 8 and the sign of that covenant was, kids, what was the sign of the covenant? Sorry? A rainbow. That's exactly right. In Genesis chapter 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, you're going to be the starting point of a whole nation. That's a massive covenant that sits behind the people of God. Then in uh, Exodus 19 and 20 and following, we see God makes a covenant with Moses and his people to say, I'm going to make you my people. Here's how you are to live. So Noah, Abraham, Moses, and then in 2 Samuel 7, we get up to a covenant with David. And that's what we're going to look at now. As we do it, I want you to note, have a look at verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Oftentimes, we would think, if God's going to speak, he really should speak to me personally. And if he hasn't spoken to me personally, then it's not really God speaking to me. And so who did God speak to here? Nathan to speak to David. Do you see that? It was a recording of what God had said. Now, interestingly enough, when I was growing up, my grandfather um, used to record conversations of the family and put them in an envelope and send them across to the United Kingdom where the rest of the family was. And today we just go, what? Why on earth would you do that? Well, because phone calls used to be really expensive. Does anyone remember this? I, I said this morning, I once had a $75 phone call with my brother in Kazakhstan. We only did that once. It used to be really expensive to hear from people. And so what I used to do is record these things because it was much better than a letter. You could hear directly from the person. Even though they weren't there, this recording was what we might call the real word. How about that? That's... Uh, that's good. And in this case, in this case, David is going to hear the real word of God through Nathan. 
Have a look at verses 4 to 7 with me. We'll pick it up verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build a house for me, build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So here's what's happening is God is really speaking. Even though it's recorded for David by Nathan, it really is God's word. And that's helpful for us because we have the word of God recorded for us, yes? And it is God speaking to us. And this is a great reminder, even if you don't hear the voice of God, you can hear the voice of God in his recording. Second, what does God say to David? Well, he says, don't presume to know what I need. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. My tent is working out fine. You're not the one who will fix this up for me. Uh, I was flying back from Melbourne uh, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, Kara, was it two weeks ago? And I found myself, just as the sun was setting, I don't know if you've done this, just as the sun was setting, I was looking out the window and I saw the beauty of the sun going down and I thought, I'm in a steel tube, 33,000 feet above the earth. I'm moving about 1,000 kilometres an hour. I'm warm, relatively comfortable. How on earth did I get here? It's this unusual place. How am I suspended in comfort above the earth looking at this scene? How did I get here? And David might be wondering, how am I a king over Israel? How did I get here? And God's about to tell him. Have a look at verses 8 to 9. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I'll make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. So David, how did you get to be king? The answer is, God did it. It wasn't because you're the most amazing guy in the, in the flock, you know, the, the best shepherd that was going around. God chose you, and he did it, and he promises he will do it again. He says, I'll make your name great. Will David have to take care of it? Who's got it? God's got it. God's got it. And more than that, he has something for his people Israel too. Have a look at verses 10 to 11. And I'll provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they've done from the beginning and, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. See, God will establish Israel. He established David, and he will establish Israel. It's God's work. God's in charge, and he is doing it. And we're about to find out some wonderful promises for David. And as I do that, I need to talk to you about multifocals. Well, I've got single focals. Does anyone need glasses here? They're great, aren't they? Amazing. Has anyone moved to multifocals? Okay, how are they? <laughs> you like them? Not so much, Ian. Oh, wait, here's the thing about multifocals. They've got different, uh, different focal distances, so you can see up close or far away. I want to talk to you about this thing I've called, it's not in any book anywhere, don't worry, I'm a bit weird, but I've called it multifocal prophecy. 
Okay? Bear with me. It'll make sense. Okay? Maybe. You can ask me in questions later. Here's, here's what happens. God's about to talk about the future to David. And he's about to do it on three levels. On the first level, he's going to talk about the very close. He's going to say stuff to David about the future that's right now, the present. And then he says, I'm going to tell you things about the near future, the near future. That's coming up, David. And then he's going to tell him some things that are in the distant future, far away. So there are things in the present, things in the near future, and then things in the very distant future. And all of them are wrapped up in this prophecy that we're about to read. In order to make sense of it, we need to make sense of my, 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 um, my theme idea of this, this series, I think. Everyone loves the royal family, right? And you're enjoying my uh, illustrations from the royal family. Is that right? Fantastic. Thank you. That's very authentic feedback. Um, who, who lives here? Queen. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's Buckingham Palace. Uh, and uh, whose family is this? Queen's family. Fantastic. So we would call this... Buckingham Palace, which is a royal house, right? And this, bizarrely enough, is called the House of Windsor, which is a royal family. Are you with me? So one's a royal house and the other's a royal house. Are you with me? So, so there's, a way, there's a way of speaking about the place where they live and there's a way of speaking about their descendants and both of them use the word house. Have a listen to this prophecy here. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 16, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So our first thought is, David is going to get a shack built by God. Is that right? No. It's the dynasty one. It's the generations one. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Fantastic. So there's some building going on here, but it's not in the way we're anticipating. There's going to be a generation to come from David. It's a bit techo up there, doesn't it? Since Davidic dynasty, a line of descendants from David. Yep, okay. And that will be into the near future. There will be kings of Israel for the next couple of hundred years who will be descended from David. That's a great promise. Second, we see in verses 12 and 13 that there will be someone, one of his descendants, who will build a house for my name. Who will build the temple? Does anyone know? Solomon. Okay, so Solomon. This is the very near future. One of your descendants is actually going to build a temple for me. Then there's the distant future. Some of these promises 
can't come true of an ordinary person. Because it says your kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. How will a king rule on the throne forever? We're looking for a special kind of king, a Messiah, an anointed one, who is the answer? You guys have got the right answer. Fantastic. So in the very distant future, David can't see it, there will be a descendant who will rule on his throne forever. Now, if you're David, this is happy grandparents' day. Okay? Because what do grandparents want most of all? Man, oh man, I, I remember my mum asking me when I was going to have a uh, child, you know, you, you got any plans? Why do they want that? They, they want to see that the family line will continue. And so if that happens, it's crazy happiness time if you're a grandparent, right? But here's, here's what happened. God has said to David, you're going to be a granddaddy and a great granddaddy and off into forever. That's a pretty good promise if you're into making sure that you would like to see your, your, um, your line continue forever. And uh, it's interesting to note that some of, his, some, of, some of his sons, when they get out of line, God will correct. There'll be a dynasty under discipline. God will deal with them if they get out of line. But what do you do if God gives happy grandparents' day to you? Well, just like being under the starry sky, if you spend enough time under it, if you look at the greatness of the promise of God, if you look at the stars at night, you go, I'm tiny. You're amazing. Who am I? And that's exactly what David says in this passage here. Have a look at verses 18 and following. Then King David went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. It's just incredible. David says, God, you're amazing, and you've done this for me. Who is worthy of such a thing? And this is the proper response to grace. We, we see that time and time again in the Bible. When, uh, when God promises Abraham that his children will be as many as the stars of the sky, he says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. When God appears to Moses and tells him, you're going to lead my people to freedom, Moses says, who am I that I should speak to Pharaoh? When John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus, he says, he must become greater, I must become less. When the Apostle Paul talks about the great message of Jesus, he says, for I'm the least of the apostles. When we meet the greatness of the plan of God, our response should be humility. Humility in the face of of grace. Well, a promise was made. It was made to David. Hey, one day, mate, Messiah is going to come. And so the people of God go, has Messiah come yet? No. Has Messiah come yet? No. Has Messiah come yet? No. And they have this terrible period where things go from bad to worse. In fact, they have to wait a thousand years. And so what did I do? Well, I thought I'd illustrate a thousand years for you. Here's a temple from Cambodia, which is 
a thousand years old. How's it faring? You get a little bit worn out when you wait for a thousand years, right? So the people of God were waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled for a thousand years. And then what happened to this promise? This bloke turned up. That's not a photo of him if you're wondering. But Jesus turned up and he started to do miracles in the back blocks of Galilee. And people started to talk about him and wonder, who who could this man be? Who is he? And so Jesus put the question to his disciples. Come with me to Matthew chapter 16, that second reading that we had for us. Matthew chapter 16, uh, it's on page 983, if you've got your Bibles there. 983, Matthew chapter 16. And uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, his followers. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Jeff told us about that before, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's a way of referring to himself. Who do the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. See, the people of God are looking and they say, hey, this guy has something supernatural about him. He's speaking about God. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a prophet. And Jesus cuts to the chase here. In verse 15, he says, but what about you? What about you? Who do you say that I am? And that would be a question for us tonight. Who do you say I am? I'm not surprised at all that it's Simon Peter who speaks up. He'll jump into things. He'll run. He'll do anything he can to be the first in line. So Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. You see, Jesus is not a prophet. And Peter has rightly seen for the first time, Jesus is actually the Messiah. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. For a thousand years and now standing in Caesarea Philippi is the Messiah. Jesus uniquely, only, especially is the long-awaited son of David. Jesus is the son of David. How do we know that? He was born in David's hometown, which was Bethlehem. It matters where Jesus was born. He was descended from David. Tick. He's the son of God. How? Because the Holy Spirit came on Mary and she conceived as a virgin. So Jesus is the son of David. He's the son of God. And we see at the end of his life, Jesus is the flogged son. He doesn't do wrong. He bears our guilt and suffers in our place. Jesus is the long-awaited son of God. He's the son of David. He's the flogged son. In fact, we can say Jesus is the long-awaited Christ. It took a thousand years, but God fulfilled 2 Samuel 7 in the person of his son. And everyone went, yeah. Well, actually, they crucified him, but it it was a, uh, it should have been a great joy to find the fulfillment to that promise. It's exactly how Peter 
introduces Jesus to the Jews on the very first day of the church. The Holy Spirit's come, a big crowd is assembled, and when Peter stands up to speak to the crowd, this is how he speaks to them. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Right there, at this time in the temple courts, Peter says, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. What an incredible blessing it is. We began this way as a church and we'll continue this way, pointing to Jesus as the Lord and the Messiah. Well, what shall we do with this message? First of all, I want to ask you to think how you'll use your rest. Will it head in a Godward direction or an inward direction? I'm going to take that challenge next time I go on holidays. Got to think about that one. Secondly, do we have friends who will speak the word of God to us? So David thought he was going to do the right thing. Hey, I've got a great plan. I'm going to build a house for God. Nathan says, go for it, until God speaks to him. And then Nathan says, do you know what, mate? I want to bring the word of God to you. You'll have to rein that in. You have to rein that in. But God has great promises for you. Do you have a friend who will speak the word of God to you? Do you have a friendship where you'll be the one bringing the word of God to bear? Thirdly, when it comes to trusting God, will you build your faith on the trustworthiness of the promise giver? See, even if it takes a thousand years, did God forget his promise? Oh, I'll help you out. The answer is no. Did God forget his promise? Great, so God's trustworthy, right? He might not be working on your time scheme, but he's always trustworthy. And I want to encourage you to build your faith on the trustworthiness of our great God. But here's where I want to finish. Will Jesus be our Christ? Will he be our Christ? If you've not made him your Christ, tonight's as good a night as any time to install Jesus in that place. I've got a king-shaped hole in my heart. I need to move myself out, put Jesus in. That's great. If you're here tonight and you already know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if he is your king and Christ, then how are you honoring him as such? Do we pray, play friendship games with God? It's really nice to see you, Jesus. Happy you're here. You can say anything that doesn't disagree with me. Or do we say, I welcome you into my life as king. You can disagree with me. You can rebuke me. You can call me to obey. Will Jesus be our Christ more than just our friend? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for David and his faithfulness. I thank you for your incredible faithfulness in the promise you made to him. I thank you, Father, that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited, long-promised Messiah, and that at him, in him, we have the great ability to be called your children and to have him as our king. I give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, that's 
our latest installment. Now you can also, I said this to my life group. I said, guys, now you know what 2 Samuel 7 is. You'll be able to go, oh, 2 Samuel 7. Ladies, don't worry. The stroking of the chin will look knowing enough, even if you don't have any fuzz on it. Uh, Very important to know 2 Samuel 7. Great chapter in the Bible. Have we got questions that you'd like to bring? Up the back. Um, what makes Jesus more special than David? Fantastic question. Thank you. David, uh, as Peter just said, David died and his tomb was occupied in Jerusalem. So there were bones in a tomb in Jerusalem. Jesus is the descendant of David. So on that level, he's one of his family. But Jesus' tomb in Jerusalem is empty. There's nothing there. And what that means, why Jesus is so special is, by virtue of coming alive again, he can be the one who comes from David, who reigns forever on his throne, because he'll never die again. Do you see this? That's how the promise can be fulfilled. Because if it had just been waiting for a next king, and next king, and next king, until somebody runs out of the family and then there's no family line, we've got no promise. But because Jesus never dies, he's better than David. Does that make sense? Great. It also happens that he's the incarnation of God, which is pretty good, but that's the main. Another question. Yeah. Um, So what does it mean in Matthew 16, verse 20, when it says, then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah? Fantastic, mate. Thank you for paying attention to the reading. I'm really really pleased to have that question. Why did Jesus say to his people, hey, you just worked out I'm the Messiah. Now, shh, keep quiet. If someone just worked out that you're the fulfillment to a thousand years of waiting, you would think, put up a billboard. Get some ads spamming people's email because we've got to get this message out here, right? The reason was everybody was expecting the Messiah to be a political king. And Israel was currently occupied by the Romans. So if all of a sudden we find the Messiah, who's a descendant of David, what have we watched David do with a sword? Well, he's been conquering all the enemies around. And so if you're the descendant of David, you're the Messiah, I tell you what immediately pops into my head. Grab your swords, boys. We're going to go and kick the Romans out. Now, Jesus is going to say, I am the Messiah. I am the promised, the anointed one. I'm going to be a king, but I'm going to be a king who ends up where? On the cross. And if I tell you guys that I'm the Messiah without teaching you, that the Son of Man must suffer and die, what's going to happen is you're going to come and try and make me king in Jerusalem on a literal throne, and we're going to have a political revolution, but we're not going to win the spiritual victory which I came to. Does that make sense? So it's really strange. It messes with our heads. You get it. Now be quiet. But the reason was Jesus needed to re-engineer their understanding of what the Messiah was so they could see that he would be the king that wins a spiritual victory, not a political, geographical one. Does that make sense? But otherwise, it's pretty confusing, mate, and that's a great question, so thank you for asking. Is there another question? Yep, Ali. We'll take one more. You may not know the answer, but I'll 
Oh, I'll be happy to tell yeah. you if I don't, but yeah. ask away. Um, so that was a thousand years they waited for Jesus. It's now been another 2,000 years. So they've been waiting 3,000 years. In that time, has there been anyone else that you're aware of that even closely fits the bill of being a Messiah? And second question, I mm. guess, is does the average, which you may not be able to answer, that uh, everyday Jewish guy, have they just all but given up? I mean, it's 3,000 years. Like, that's a really that's a great set of questions. Um, there's a wonderful bit in Acts, which I'm not sure I'll be able to find just on the fly, where um, uh, they're trying to decide what to do with Peter and John, who've been talking about Jesus. And uh, Gamaliel speaks up and he says, look, a while ago, a guy called such and such turned up and everyone thought that he might be the Messiah. And when he was killed, everyone was scattered. If this Jesus bloke is like this other guy, then we don't need to worry because this thing's going to come to a natural messy end. But, he says, if he is the Messiah, we've got to be careful because if we're not, we'll find ourselves fighting against God. Now, there's an example of where they cite in the New Testament somebody else who they thought might have been somebody and turned out to be a nobody. Have there been other people? I don't know, for the Jews, once the temple was broken in about AD 70, it's pretty hard to kind of come back and say, I'm the king we're going to rally around and have a revolution. So there's a big mess in the history of Israel. I don't know enough to say definitively, but I would say not too many people would have come and said, I'm the son of David. Um, your second question, remind me. Does the average Jew still wait? Yeah, I would say that the average Jew is still waiting for the Messiah to come. They're a pretty patient mob, aren't they? Uh, and I want to show you something beautiful. Will it be next week? I'll show you something awesome uh, from in Jerusalem about people who are waiting for the Messiah. It's pretty good. But yeah, thank you. Great question. So I think they are, yes. And no, I don't think there have been a lot of candidates in the meantime. All right. We might call it uh, quits there. If you've got more questions, write them on your Caring Connect card or come and see me afterwards. What we're going to do now is we're going to remember the Christ. We're going to remember... Jesus by doing this very simple thing, which is called the Lord's Supper. And in doing this, we're going to take some very ordinary things and use them in the way that Jesus told us to, to remind ourselves about him and about what he has done. And tonight, if you're here and you're someone who has made Jesus your Christ, your Messiah, the King, then you are welcome to take the bread and the juice. If tonight you're yet to do that, first of all, great night to choose to do it. Secondly, you might just want to let this go past and take it when you're ready to say, hey, Jesus, you're actually my king. You're actually my king. What well, says this in the Bible, it says, on the night that Jesus died, he took bread and when he had broken it, he gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. As I've been saying all day, the cup Jesus took wasn't plastic and tiny like this, but he took the cup. And again, giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this, all of you. 
This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray this prayer together, church. Father, we thank you for these gifts of your creation and pray that we who eat and drink them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, believing our Saviour's word, may be partakers of his body and blood. Amen. So what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to ask Michael to come and help me. And maybe Ali and John, do you guys want to come and give me a hand? What we're going to do, we're going to pass this around. Uh, if you're a child here today, if you haven't talked with your parents, I'd invite you to let it go past you. Um, but if you have, uh, you can take it. So we'll let that go around and then we'll eat and drink together. So just hang on to it until we're all ready to eat and drink together.